Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I am Dr. Mike Todorovic. I am joined by my co-host, Dr. Matt Barton. How are you? Hello, Mike. How are you? Good, thank you. We have a very special guest today, Matty. We have somebody who is a surgeon, a mother, an academic, and an advocate. She is a general and breast surgeon, the surgical lead at Bond University here in Queensland, and the immediate past chair of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons Operate with Respect Committee, which we would love to have a chat about at some point, hopefully. We are joined by Associate Professor Ria Liang. How are you? Oh, I'm good. Thank you, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a long time coming. We've been trying to organise this for a while now. So Matt and I are very excited. Today, the topic is going to focus on your journey through medicine, basically what it takes to be a surgeon, which I don't think I've got what it takes, in all honesty, to be a surgeon. I know Matt definitely doesn't. I've worked with him for a long time. He just doesn't have any of what it takes. But we've got uh, – luckily, we've got – you today because Matt and I we're, we're lifelong academics here we're not medicos uh, we obviously teach health students or aspiring health professionals and I think a lot of the audience would love to know I'm a, about, I'm a rodent surgeon that's true you do all your research on animals unfortunately legally and ethically <laughs> well it's cleared by animal ethics <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think to begin with Ria I, I would love to start off by just Getting you to set the scene, where are you at the moment? What are you doing in your life, career-wise? Yeah, so first of all, I'd like to say anyone can be a surgeon, actually, <laughs> despite what Even you've just me? said. Even yes, me? Yes, yes. Wow. You know, it's like, I know His your listeners- His handshake a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know your listeners can't see me in person, 
but honestly, I'm five foot tall. I weigh 40 kilograms. I'm the wrong gender, or so I was told when I was training. Oh, God. Um, and when I started surgery, I could barely manage about 20 minutes of it without feeling like I was going to faint. But here I am. Wow. So I think anyone can be a surgeon, but it's just whether it really floats your boat because it's certainly not an easy lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> um, anyway, what am I up to now? Well, I'm officially mid-career, um, but we'll hopefully talk more about career later on and kind of the fallacy of retirement. Mm. Um, <laughs> so I'm officially mid-career and I'm a consultant surgeon, have been a consultant surgeon for about 15 years. Um, so about half of my existing department are actually people I trained when they were junior doctors. Oh, wow. Um, and so I'm considered a senior. <laughs> 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 um, in addition to my clinical work, I do research and that takes two streams. So one of them is to do with breast cancer research. So that's clinical research. But the other side is as a diversity advocate, I have a great interest in the sort of sociology mm. of medical and surgical spaces so I think about things like you know why are there not more women surgeons or why is it that we're underrepresented for indigenous trainees you mm. know things like that and so I do research in that area as well so that's my academic output as well as that of course as you mentioned at the start I'm the surgical lead for Bond University I took that position up in January last year just before the pandemic started and it's been a very steep oh, learning yes. curve. Yes, I think uh, <laughs> everyone within academia, students and staff alike have realised the big change and shift that's happened since since COVID. So how, how did it affect you? Well, the thing was I hadn't done any undergraduate teaching much at all ever. Mm. So most of my – so I'm a medical educator. I hold both a bachelor's and a master's in medical education, but wow. most of that – teaching was at tertiary or post-tertiary, sort of, mm. um, sorry, not even tertiary, po like fellowship or post-fellowship level ah, okay. in surgery. So we would take the people who were four or five years after graduation from medical school when they're getting ready to enter surgical training. Yeah. And that's where I start. And then, of course, with the Operate with the Spec program, which we'll talk about later, that's yeah. actually – educating consultant surgeons, yes. so people at my level. So delving into the undergrad space was a new thing. That's so a totally different cohort. Totally thing. Yeah, so from January last year already I was like, wait, someone explained to me, you know, how the curriculum works, how it's stacked together through the years, how we assess these things, blah, yes. blah, 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 blah. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and it was like trying to do two things at once because it was like um, learning the job yeah. as well as learning what needed to change in yeah. response to the pandemic. Learning what the role was and then yeah. how you're going to make the role what it is today post-COVID. Yeah. yeah but that you would know, have been it, steep. It worked because surgery is all about, I mean, this this might sound weird, but we make it up as we go along. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. I mean, we're very well trained. We yeah. <laughs> a certain set of skills that we apply, but when you cut into someone, you actually do not know what you're going to find. Yes. And you have to be constantly adaptable. Mm. So taking those skills and transferring it to the pandemic actually means that, you know, we can pivot on a five cent piece now. Yes. <laughs> I do yeah. think surgeons are uh, the SAS of medicine because of that exact reason. You need the stamina and you need to be able to adapt. Yeah. Well, I think it's quite strong role modelling for others that the stereotype is of someone who looks like the SAS, mm. you know, six foot tall, built. Especially orthopedics. Yeah, yeah, really <laughs> fit. And, of course, they walk in, they see me, tiny, <laughs> tiny little lightweight thing. And yet I will stand, you know, for 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours, as, as long as it takes wow. and do do the job. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the navigating we do inside people is by the millimetre. So why do you need to be six foot tall? Yeah, true. You know, and so if I can do it, it's like, well, if you like the surgery, I don't care what size or shape you are, you can do it too. That's awesome. 
Yeah. And I think we're going to get to some of the more the details in regards to that. Uh, um, before we go back to where it all began for you, um, something that's happened to you recently, I believe that you've lost your appendix. Um, so <laughs> Where'd the, you lose it? The, the roles were reversed. You had the scalpel on you. Can you talk about that uh, experience? Maybe what it's like perspective-wise as a, as a patient rather than a surgeon. Um, how's your recovery been? And as a surgeon, general surgeon, did you have the luxury to choose your surgeon? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know how did, them all? how did it how did it start? What was the very first symptom that you had? And as a surgeon, what was going through your head right at the beginning? Walk us through. <laughs> well, I have to say, so I'm now six weeks post-op, and I had probably the most atypical presentation of appendicitis that you can have. So as a surgeon, it didn't occur to me at all that it could be my appendix. <laughs> Even though you've cut them out before, I assume? I have cut them out of many, many hundreds, yeah. yes. Um, but the thing was, I thought I might be coming down with a viral thing, and it came very suddenly. So there were it was a weekend. There were two league games on that night. I'd just put family dinner on the table, and I think the first sign was I sat down to eat and thought, hmm, not terribly hungry tonight. Mm. You know, but that's with a normal kind of variation. After dinner, husband and I sat down on the couch to watch the two league games and I remember feeling a bit hot and cold and thinking, oh, I'd better go and get a COVID swab tomorrow. Uh, that's actually my last kind of clear memory. Wow. Wow. wow yeah. that, so was that that's quick? quick. Yeah, really quick. Within three hours. So within from first symptoms to in the ambulance was three hours. Wow. I just, I've never heard it. Happening that quick. Yeah. So so my diagnosis when I arrived at so the So no emergency, abdominal pain at this point, really? Well, I think if I'd been conscious to tell them, I probably would <laughs> I probably could have told them. But sorry for laughing, but my God. Yeah, yeah. So I got really sick before I, you know, like yeah. I was just so incredibly sick. So I don't actually have very many memories of the next sort of 48 hours, but have pieced it together from what people have told me. Wow. But I did arrive very sick, very saggy blood pressure, very fast heart rate, very high temperature. And they thought viral as well when you first got there? Well, they, they thought I had sepsis. Okay. Uh, which is a sort of catch-all term for some terrible infection. Mm. Um, it's kind of the, at the blood level. Yeah. 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 And so you'll hear of people dying of septic shock, you know. Yes. But it can be due to viruses, bacteria, all sorts of things. Mm. And so, you know, they – Got to work doing, you know, taking blood, sticking me through the CT scanner, you know, um, got a lovely catheter into my bladder to take urine samples. Oh, good fun. <laughs> good fun. <laughs> I think I'm quite glad I was not conscious yes. for that bit. Um, have you seen your scans? The, the the juniors have walked me back through it. And no, you cannot see the appendix on the initial right, scan. because of the positioning of the appendix. Yeah, so my appendix, as it turns out, is in an odd position. And all they could see was that the guts were very swollen. Right. Yeah. So I think the working diagnosis for the first day was enteritis, which is another sort of generic catch-all. Vague inflammation. Is that um, considered a cause of sepsis or could the sepsis then cause? Yeah, yeah. So so enteritis can cause sepsis. Um, So that was the working thing. They started me on antibiotics, you know, things weren't improving. And so on the second day... I think it was becoming clear that the belly was probably the cause yeah. of something else going on. So they called the surgical team. Now the surgical team are people I work with day in day out. Usually, they, are you usually in the as their boss. Are you yes. in the hospital that you operate? Yes. All right. Yes. So that was difficult for them, and I think I mean <laughs> I can like understand. I, like I said, do you remember this console? I, I have only little 
snapshots, you okay, know, okay, yeah. little bits where you opened your eyes and thought, oh, there's someone I know. <laughs> oh, oh, no, not you. No. <laughs> Anyone but you. No, I have to say, I have to say, you know, the overwhelming feeling whenever you saw someone you knew was of peace and calm. Okay. And That's good. Being that in is safe good. hands, yeah. And Wonderful. I don't know whether people say that when you're – Septic, you have this kind of warm, Euphoria. yeah, you know, like nothing really bothers you. <laughs> I mean, I do remember um, a little snapshot, must have happened in the first few hours, but someone leant down by my right ear, and I don't know to this day who it was, but they leant down to my right ear. Um, my eyes, I couldn't, I did, couldn't even muster the energy to open my eyes, but I remember a voice saying, um, Dr. Liang, um, your blood pressure's getting worse, we're going to have to call ICU. And out of my mouth floats... Oh, that's nice. <laughs> wow. Like, you know, wow. I just – it didn't register. I was just away with the fairies. So no anxiety at any no, point that you no. could – Isn't that amazing? Amazing. Yeah, you just don't kind of – it must be a protective mechanism, yeah. I yeah. think, of your body, You'd of your brain so. yes. to protect you from what's actually going on. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. So all so everyone, your juniors are rushing around saying, well, we can't let our boss die on our watch. <laughs> so they're trying to fix everything up. So at what point – so, so you went into surgery how long after you were admitted? Well, uh, I think it was a day and a half after I was admitted, but only a few hours since the actual surgical team was called. But I actually went to surgery in a different hospital because oh. what had happened was there were no actually no ICU beds in the first hospital okay. I presented wow. at, and so a transfer was organised. So because I think at the time they operated, they still weren't entirely sure what they were going to find. Yes. And so they had to prepare for all possibilities. Oof. So they transferred me out so that there was an ICU bed available if I needed it. Um, I think for them it must have been a great relief when they got the camera in there and went, oh, it's just an appendix, <laughs> you know, something we deal with day in, day out. Isn't it amazing? I mean, that uh, something that you'd think would be innocuous, well, not innocuous, but uh, so commonplace um, for general surgeons that – it wasn't known until you got to get the camera in. I mean, that's often with the appendix, I assume, is that you can't be 100% sure until you have a look that it's the appendix. Yeah. I, since I've had my appendix out, there's a number of surgeons who have said to me, you know, oh, I had something similar, you know, I was in sepsis and I had an appendix in the wrong spot. And so I'm beginning to think that being a surgeon is a bad prognostic sign for <laughs> presenting with typical appendicitis. <laughs> and I think it's a little bit like midwives having no normal births. You yes. know, you know, like it, yes. there's just something that it's a bad prognostic sign yeah. <laughs> to be in the business. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. And so they, they took it out. They chucked you on a whole bunch of antibiotics, I assume, among other things. Yeah. And how long after did you go home? Um, so I have to admit now I am the worst patient ever. <laughs> so Would a lot of surgeons and doctors be probably terrible patients? Yes. So I pretty well signed myself out of hospital <laughs> far too early. I went back to work far too early. Yeah. I just didn't think the rules that – apply to every patient I have operated on somehow didn't apply to me or so I thought and so I have had to eat humble pie repeatedly. We're all good at giving the advice but not taking the advice. That's it but I'll tell you what you know kindness matters and the culture we build around us matters because my unit and my team have been phenomenal mm. you know they've picked up when I've been saying no 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 I'm fine and gone no you're not Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Sit down. Yeah. Trust trust the team. Yeah, they've looked after me beautifully. It, it makes you realise don't be a, a bad boss. 
because things could have. T- no, I'm just joking. <laughs> no, no, um, I think that'll relate to our discussion later about operate with respect. You know, yes. what goes around comes around. Oh, totally. This is the world, isn't it? Yeah. This is the, you have to treat people with respect. Just That's it. Because, you know, they won't look after you. Mm. You know, if you were the sort of boss who had created a very steep hierarchy where anyone who pokes their head up gets their head chopped off. Oh. Then even if, they, scared to help even if they thought you were struggling, they'd just be like, I won't say anything, I won't say anything, I won't say anything. They'd just let you keel over. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, what goes around comes around. Absolutely. If you're kind to your juniors, they'll, come, they'll be kind to you in return. So it's been six weeks mm-hmm. post-op. Mm-hmm. Today, right now, how are you feeling? Well, if I'd been talking to my patients, I'd be like, okay, at six weeks post-op, this is where you're allowed to start doing normal duties. <laughs> Because we usually say she says on the podcast, that yeah. Because <laughs> normally we're like, you know, your first set of dressings off in one week, and then back to light duties at two weeks, but no heavy lifting till six weeks. And of course, yeah. surgery is a job of heavy lifting. Yeah, there's kind of no getting around that. So, under normal circumstances, if I was my surgeon, I'd be like, at this point, you can go back to your usual work. Yeah, of course, being You've a terrible back. patient, I've been back for three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> But you're feeling good. I am. Or better. better. Are you at 100% yet, do you think? No. Okay. No. And I'm off to see my GP. So another hint, make sure you've got a good GP. Very important. I agree. Yep. So going off to see my GP tomorrow, who'll, um, I've got a very stern, very no-nonsense GP, and that's exactly what I need. I'm, I'm exactly <laughs> the same. Yes. Yes. Well, you need somebody you can trust, somebody that knows you and can just give you the truth, just say, this is reality. Yeah. You need to listen. So do you think that they're going to say to you, you probably should just calm down a little bit until you're 100%? Yeah. Her point is you're not – you weren't a normal – you know, you weren't a standard append- appendicectomy. Yeah. yeah. You're actually recovering from the septic shock, not from mm. the appendicectomy. Yes. And because of what we know about sepsis and what it does to your muscle mass and all that sort of thing, it's yeah. going to take you a little bit longer. So I think her plan was to let me go back part-time but not full-time at this point. Yes. Well, people die from sepsis very quickly. Yes. And, so, of course, since I've had my event, you know, my lovely critical care colleagues have sent me papers to read. You know, we're all <laughs> academic. And you're sitting there reading these things about, you it's know. It's not passive-aggressive at all. Yeah, you lose <laughs> half your muscle mass in the first week, you know. Wow. I think the rates of PTSD are 20% or something. Wow. <laughs> you know, wow. I, and I have to say, I, I'm still getting flashbacks. Of course. Of yeah. course. This is a significant life event. Yeah. Truly is. Yeah, you wake in the night all sweaty thinking that you're still in the ICU. Wow. You know, with the monitors beeping and the smell of it and that horrible feeling of not being able to move. Yes, Um, of course. And it's that just a few seconds, very distressing seconds before you wake up properly and think, oh, I'm in my own bedroom. Yes. You know, so still kind of dealing with that. Well, we are glad that (laughs) you are nearly at 100% and we're glad that you can join us today. Um, that's, That's an amazing story. That's an amazing story. Now, I think... Let's jump into your journey through through medicine. And I think if we can start at a relative beginning in regards to maybe why did you go into medicine? Um, if there is a why, maybe the, you just wanted to try things out, give it a shot. But the why and then the how, how did you do it? You know, did you go straight from high school? Did you do anything in between? Let's begin firstly with the why. There's two whys, I think. Um, the first why is it's my family business, so I'm actually a fourth-generation 
doctor. Oh, wow. So the whole family, my father, my grandfather and someone in the generation before that as well, have all been doctors. Wow. And family events are studded with, you know, doctors of all different specialties. My older sister is a paediatrician. Oh, there you go. Um, you know, aunts and uncles, mostly physicians. We haven't had a surgeon in the family since one of my great uncles, so it skipped a couple of generations. Wow. Um, but – uh, you know, discussions around the dinner table, the sort of uh, back in the pre-internet days, you know, the sort of textbooks and papers that would be left lying around the house. You yes. know, you're kind of bathed in it. So it felt very familiar. But having said that, it's not the sort of family where you have to do it. You know, my younger sister kind of ignored all of this and became a rather famous filmmaker. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so that's her. And, and, you know, no one judges her badly for that. It's no. Yeah. So no. it's not obligatory, but it is something that you grow up with and you're quite familiar with. But for me as well, I had an essential fascination with it. Yeah. You know, like I loved reading the textbooks yeah. um, and just find the human body so fascinating inside and out. Um, so, so two reasons, like I said, family and a personal interest in it. So I didn't waste time. I straight out of what in New Zealand in the 1990s was known as Form 7, which is year 12 in yep. Australia, straight out, straight out of there I went into Auckland Medical School. And okay. because I was a smart little cookie, I'd been accelerated through school. Right. Um, so I was only 17 when wow. I started. Um, and so I popped out the other end aged only 22 yeah. Um, and promptly got to work on the business of getting more senior and getting into specialty training. But when I say specialty training, I actually mean GP. Oh, oh that was your intention. My you. first, yeah, yeah. I really wanted to be a GP. I love people. I'm fascinated by the diversity of people's lives. I yeah, love like family chatting medicine to people. In a way. Yeah, and I also liked the appeal of the lifestyle, you know, that um, yes. it seemed very compatible with a family. Family, yes. Um, yeah, because I'd also met, you know, the love of my life at med school and we intended to settle down. Nice. Mm. Can I go back to when you're in the house, you're in a house of physicians right, yep. or a family of physicians, there's textbooks laying around and this makes me think about um, myself with my kids. Um, I've got textbooks laying around the house. My, I, I always catch my daughter just look. She doesn't – she's four. She doesn't know what she's looking at, but she's looking at these pages and going through it. And it always makes me think about how important the environment of children growing up is and how, how strongly that shapes where a child goes. And so do you think that the environment itself was powerful? Like do you think there was, there was something that was innate about going into medicine or do you think that – the environment really shaped where you wanted to go or where you intended to go? I think the environment is really critical and it drives a lot of my thinking about social equity. Mm. You know, the idea that some kids don't even get a chance. Mm. They don't yes. get taught well to read. Mm. They're not surrounded by books. Yeah. It's hard enough just getting fed and clothed, you know. Yes. They, they can't aspire to higher things if you're hungry all day. Mm. Um, and so um, I think because – a lot of my, you know, I have an Asian background and when you go back to Asian countries where we're not fortunate to have a social security system like we have in Australia, mm. the gap between the haves and the have-nots is very, very marked. You can step out of your luxury apartment and be amongst homeless people begging on yeah. the streets, you know. And coming from New Zealand where I grew up, this was very striking to me. My aunts and uncles would just walk past these people and I'd be just standing there on the footpath, just staring, going, yeah. but this, this can't be right. This, how, how does this happen? Um, you know, and so that really guided some of my early thinking about, you know, that's, that's partly why I'm a social equity advocate. You know, we don't know which 
Einstein um, or which Ruth Bader Ginsburg we're missing yes. by someone who might only be four years old now yes. who happens to be born into a household that's different to what we're providing our kids. Yeah, I totally so I agree. think the environment is critical. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And, and always, uh, I always think back on that and think how privileged some of us truly are just to be able to do that. And like you said, there's some kids that just don't even have books around their house. Mm. Their parents don't read to them for whatever particular reason and they don't – and I think all of us would agree that those formative years are so powerful in shaping your future. Mm. Um, there's just some things that you can't learn as an adult – that you will pick up as a child. Uh, and I think reading is definitely one of them. If you're, if you're fluent as a child, you're going to be fluent as an adult. Don't expect to be able to become this brilliant reader as an adult if you n- never read as a child. It's, mm. And th- that's just one of many, many examples. Yeah. So you got into medicine straight from school. Did you do any um, – sorry. Hey, go on. <laughs> Did you do any uh, particular subjects? That's what um, I was going to ask. To kind of that align your – transition i did the new zealand version of what my teenagers now call the suicide six which is a terrible name for it <laughs> what is the suicide six i haven't heard this like a movie. it's an australian <laughs> it sounds like a quentin tarantino film i haven't met it till i got to australia i think someone will have to correct me on this but it's like maths a b and c and the three sciences or something you know like oh, it's a yes. very Physics, chemistry. Wow, it's a lot of yeah. math yeah yeah it's a, it's a pure science based you know designed to get into medicine gotcha. basically and so um so i did the new zealand version of that i mean the subjects have got different names we had maths calc and math stats and, this, yep. that and the next thing but yeah so i did that um but i had a very broad upbringing in that um i also studied music to a high degree i studied dance to a high degree oh nice um, we did a lot of work in the Chinese community, and my father, my father has what's the New Zealand equivalent of an OBE, you know, officer oh, wow. of the British Empire for services. Um, so um, he has an ONZM, and that was for his service to the asthma community of New Zealand. So as a paediatrician himself, he founded the New Zealand Asthma Foundation. Oh, and I remember being quite resentful about this as a teenager because a lot of the startup when you're starting a charity, is basically using the slave labour of your teenage kids. <laughs> so, you Putting know. flies in envelopes, licking the envelopes, oh, going out onto the street and handing things out. and yeah. You sound like you've got personal experience. <laughs> Look, isn't that why we have kids? To get them to do these things for free. But there were transferable skills. You know, we had a little shop. Um, this is in the pre-internet days. So people who wanted like dust mite covers for their mattresses or whatever, you'd drive to this little asthma foundation shop and me age 16 would be there going well and we've got three models of this and the difference between them is blah 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 and you know so you'd learn you know good which you hated at the time i'm sure but in retrospect it built something in you i assume it built some form of character you learn to talk to patients and their parents you learn to relate to lots of different types of people. You learn the responsibility of actually turning up at the hour that you would yes. said you would. Yes. Um, and you learn the amazing reward of helping other people. Mm. You know, like that's essentially medicine. Yeah. You know, if it doesn't give you satisfaction to help other people, you're in the wrong business because yes. it's a hard life. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So you did the suicide six <laughs> subject wise. Did you find – was, was school enjoyable? Was it difficult? Did you find that you were dedicating a huge amount of your time to study in order to get into medicine? I'm sure there's a lot of listeners that are trying to get into medicine at the moment and uh, 
probably thinking about the difficulties associated with it and the amount of time and so forth. Can you just talk a little bit about, did, did you find it easy, difficult, time-wise? How did it, how did it go for you? I'm, I wouldn't want your listeners to look at me and think that this is what you have to do because I'm one of those lucky sorts that reads things once and it sort of soaks in. Oh, very nice. Yeah, and I'm also a very visual learner, so if I see it in a diagram form, it's all in there. Uh, very which nice. made learning things like anatomy very easy. Yes. Yeah. So everyone's brains works in slightly different ways. You have to find what. Or like maths, it doesn't work at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, it's very inspiring that he's gotten to where he is now. <laughs> very true. Very true. That's a good point. <laughs> um, but you know, so. If for those who are trying to get into med school, I'd say don't, you know, you know your own brain best, mm. find what works for it. But if you think a little bit beyond the actual getting into med school part, the actual aim is to become a better doctor. Mm. And you can know all the maths and physics in the world and not be a good doctor. Yes. Because it's an essentially humanitarian job i think a lot of people forget that especially when they're not in it yet they 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 think that it's all about the theory and what you can regurgitate or put onto a piece of paper but that social aspect is so important that's it and i think almost everyone well may i mean teenagers possibly haven't been unwell very much but i think most people have had a health event where you know you get the doctors who often through no fault of their own, you know, they're overworked and stretched, but, you know, they they don't seem to pay you attention. They're mm. a bit brusque. They don't communicate well. They don't look you in the eye or whatever. You come away feeling a bit unsatisfied. Yes. So the people going into medicine often have very noble aims. You know, they want to help people. They want to be doctors. But essentially you have to try not to be that doctor. Yes, right. absolutely. And I think this is where, at least for me, so I, I, I'm, I like to – call myself a health communicator, but I'm very active on social media, Twitter and Instagram, and you are as well. Um, and I suggest everybody follow Ria on Twitter because it's definitely worth it. Uh, yeah, what is your you handle? You can't follow me anywhere else because I'm, um, I'm older than I look, as in I'm just a few runs off a half century now. <laughs> um, and I came to social media late in 2018 so I'm a late adopter of it and I can only manage one platform (laughs) so I'm not anywhere as clever as Mike is um, but I am at I mean it's very easy at Liang Ria perfect um, and I do suggest everybody goes and follows you because it's a brilliant account Um, but I I find that a a lot of people that I have following me at least on Instagram I would say more so I, I think a lot of the medical community I'm embedded there on, on Twitter, MedEd and MedTwitter. But on Instagram, a lot of just the general population who are just interested in health and their body and so forth, I would say an overwhelming number of them have said to me, oh, like I'll do a video on simplifying maybe some disease state. And they'd say, oh, I've got this. And my specialist couldn't explain that to me. Mm. I didn't understand a word that came out of my specialist's mouth. And I think because there is this implicit, hierarchy between a patient and a specialist or their doctor, they're too scared to question. They're too Mm. scared to ask or say, can you actually put that in words that I can understand? And so they go there, they have, they pay $200 or $200 for 10 minutes for the specialist to say something they don't understand about their own body. And then they leave not knowing what's going on with them. And so you're entirely right. I think it's so important for 
especially medicos, to be able to understand because they know what they're doing, but to be able to articulate that in a way that somebody can understand is is not easy, but needs to be done. And yeah. I'm sure you appreciate. I mean, with your bachelor's and postgraduate degree in in medical education, it's it's not easily done, but it's really important. Yes, and I was so pleased when I took up my position with Bond to see that not just at Bond, but um, also you know because of the linkage through the medical deans group, which links all the twenty something medical schools across Australasia, mm. that they're all thinking about this quite seriously and have all built it into their, into their curriculum. So when I went through medical school in the nineteen nineties, at no point did we were we ever assessed on you know here's your OSCE station, sit down with this patient, explain their disease state to them. Oh. That, you know that never happened. Yeah, but. In modern medical schools, that is now being taught. Yes. So as time goes on, I think the younger generation coming through will be much better doctors than my generation were, and as, right. it, as it should be, of course. Yes. Yeah, you want it to get better yeah. over time. <laughs> Things That's should right. get better, not worse. Yeah. But also you want to empower the patient to understand what's happening to them because then they can make better health decisions mm-hmm. down the, the track. Yeah, well, patients are changing too. So my generation, my mother's generation, for example, put the doctor on a real pedestal yeah. and – there was that trust, you know, you trusted that the doctor had your best interests and would recommend the best treatment for you. They wouldn't question it. You know, the doctor said it, you just did it. The patients today are much more curious. Mm. They want to know and they have access to the internet and so they know that there are different alternatives. They've already diagnosed themselves (laughs) before they come in. Yeah, and so I think it's a sort of conceit if doctors think that their word would be taken over anything else that the patient has access to. Yes. You know, they doctors have to make their case. You know, you have to convince the patient that yeah. what you're recommending is better than whatever they've had from the internet, from friends or f- from the other doctor that they also consulted, you know, mm. because getting multiple opinions is also perfectly, you know, perfectly allowable these days. Yeah. It's a much more open market and we have to train our doctors for that. So with your... Um, medical education cap on. Um, so besides maybe uh, helping your students learn better ways to communicate the science and the medicine to the patients, what other things have you noticed that has changed a lot since you were a medical student to now as a medical teacher? Well, we were undergraduates and younger and a lot of us went to medical school without a great deal of life experience. Right. Mm. Um, the medical students nowadays are a different bunch they're most commonly uh, postgraduate they often have a career before they got to medical school they're much more self-driven and to put them in an environment where they're more or less treated like secondary school kids again yeah it doesn't work well you know it's not good for their learning that the essential thing about adult learning is that adults identify their own learning needs and are more motivated to learn if they know what they're learning it for. Yes. So it's not like secondary school It's where it's like learn this curriculum because. Yes. Because it's in the curriculum and you're going to get examined on it. You know, it it won't work like that. And it distresses me sometimes when medical schools slip into that hole, well, they have to learn it because it's the curriculum. Yeah. Um, I think we all know individually that, something that's not in the curriculum that really piques your interest, you'll spend hours digging into it and learning. And so if we can, as medical schools, really kind of amplify that and get people excited about what they're learning, and essentially that's your work doing these podcasts, Mm. then they will sink any amount of energy into it. 
because they're just naturally curious. Yes. Yeah. And these are good habits that we have to drive for when they become consultants. So when you're a consultant or any kind of health practitioner, when you're a practicing nurse, when you're practicing uh, practicing uh, physio, anything, there's not a curriculum. No one's going to say, you know, you're going to get examined on this yeah, at the end this of the is term. Next. This is what you have to read. Here are your readings. Go read them. You know. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we need to establish these habits early. Absolutely agree. So another question, I'm going to change your hat now to a surgeon. Um, <laughs> so I've worked in the medical school before. I, I taught mostly the, the anatomy and the embryology. So I spent a lot of time with surgeons um, that would deliver the anatomy to the students. And uh, a common response that I would get from the surgeons would be, oh, they just don't teach them anatomy anymore. Uh, <laughs> in my day, we would do two years of dissections um, our own from our own, our own steam Nowadays, you teach them 20 hours. So uh, as a surgeon, do you feel how, – how does it feel to you when you have um, students come in or maybe interns and their level of anatomy? Does that, does, is that difficult for you or you just see it, they'll just learn it in their specialty training? So there's a sort of basic level of anatomy that you should know. Yeah. But the very detailed – so I trained in that old two years cadaveric dissection right, day right. as well. And I'll tell you, I forgot all of it between that and when I – you know, apart from the bit you had to learn for each exam, um, I forgot it all again before I got yeah. to surgical training right. because there seemed to be no practical application of it. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Finally, when I started operating, you're like, oh, my God, the anatomy of the inguinal hernia is so cool. Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah. So – that's the thing. It's kind of like the learning of it and the application of it are divorced. And the other thing that the surgeon teachers often forget is not everyone's going to be a surgeon. That's right. Yeah. You know, if you're going to be, you know, a specialist in, say, the kidney, do you really need to know, say, head and neck anatomy or the inguinal right. hernia anatomy? Right. You know, yeah. it, it's like – so I think sometimes it's easy to see your own teaching in rose-coloured glasses because it clearly worked well for you personally, but it's a fallacy to apply that back to med school where yeah. people are going to head off into lots of different specialties. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think a good example of this is when, and I th- I'm sure every university student has experienced this, they're doing a subject, doesn't matter what the subject is, they get, I guess, they, their convener or whoever their lecturer is from week to week will have a very specific research field. And then when that topic comes up, They'll talk about it for seven hours and it may not necessarily <laughs> be that relevant to yes. that topic um, or that course, but because that's the lecturer's research field, yes. that's their passion. So they're going to te- teach you all these details that you will never need to know ever again. And it happens every single course with every single lecturer. And I think one thing that Matt and I always try and do every year is we reevaluate our anatomy and physiology courses to see what, what's the most practical aspect, the side, you know, do we really need to spend two hours on this very specific thing? What mm. is the clinical relevance of this? Uh, and and we try and reevaluate every year, and we get clinicians coming in to tell us because you know we don't know we're lifetime academics, so we're just boring bastards sitting in an office. So we need the clinicians to come in and say, yeah, I don't know why you're spending two hours on this. I haven't touched this since you taught me this in undergraduate. So you're absolutely right. I think it's, it's so important. And like you said, it, it drives that, it, it has that intrinsic motivation. If you're in medicine, you're probably already a curious person. And so you want to know 
why these things are happening and how they're happening. And so there needs to be that relevance there to, to hook to hook you, particularly yes. as a student. Yes, yes. I mean, all of us know from, you know, the rabbit hole of vanishing into social media for hours at a time. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, that which can often be on a very niche topic that if yes. you're driven by your own self-directed learning, you can go for hours. Yeah. So true. Yeah, and so if we can make that align with what you're trying to teach, you know, give them the why. Why should you want to know this? Yeah. Then that makes the whole learning easier rather than I will memorise this because I was told to. Yeah. At which point, as soon as the assessment or exam's done, it's gone out of their head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the motivation and the thinking behind many medical stu- schools being problem-based learning. Yes. And orientating it around the case of the week. So you try to deliver your anatomy, your physiology, plus going through those cases um, all aligned which can be challenging, right? Yeah. Did you do PBL in your medical? No. So PBL was a kind of newfangled thing that yeah. arrived as I was becoming a medical right. educator. Um, but we had a pretty kind of straight up. So um, the Auckland medical degree back then was a two-tiered degree. So it was a double bachelor's. Right. Um, and the first bachelor's, which was the BHB, the Bachelor of Human Biology, it, it was kind of a sort of semi-pyramidal thing. There were a few who dropped out after that and went into affiliated fields and then a smaller cohort who went on to get the MBCHB. Um, And that was just because we were all rank, you know, undergraduates straight out of high school. Um, So it was designed for us. Um, But, yeah, so it was very traditional. You know, the first three years was pure book learning and the second three years was pure clinical, (laughs) whereas we integrate that much much better now. Yes, and that's a good thing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So was there an exam you had to sit from high school to get into med school or was it simply just the score that you got from high school that got you in? So the predominant thing was the academic achievement. Mm -hmm. New Zealand had a sort of two-tier system similar to the British A&O levels. So they had slightly old-fashioned names, you know, university bursary was your kind of straight-up university interest exam, and then there was university scholarship as well. Yep. And in an illustration of social equity, I went to a girls' school which was more of a sort of um, posh finishing school that actually didn't offer the teaching at scholarship level for a lot of the subjects. Wow. So my poor parents had to hire private tutors to get oh, me through wow. that part. And so the upshot of that was I think from my cohort – of almost 200 girls, only two of us went to medical school because you literally could not from that setting get the marks that you'd require to qualify for an interview to get into med school. Um, You know, and things have moved on a lot since then. That school has since become very academic. But the thing was, you know, like I say, it's it's like standing on the streets of Hong Kong looking at homeless people, you know. Mm. These things just kind of stick in your brain and you're like, wow, if it weren't for having motivated parents who wanted to – enable my dreams of going to medical yeah. school, I wouldn't happen. I would never have got there. Yeah. Yeah. And purely just because I was a girl, I was born as a girl and I got sent to a girl's school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No choice of your own. So yeah. so looking back to your secondary school years, if you were going to give advice to say a niece or someone who's progressing through school wanting to go into medicine, I know you spoke about the suicide six. Um <laughs> But knowing now what a medical student should have and then a, a good doctor should have, would you give advice on doing different subjects than the, you know, the maths, the chemistry, the physics? Yeah. Or even not going straight into medicine, maybe, <laughs> maybe a, a gap year or a gap years? Yeah, so I've, I'm often asked about the gap year. Um, I think if you 
know that that's what you want to do, then doing a gap year doesn't kind of add anything. You know, you shouldn't say to a kid, you're too young, go away, come come mm. back later. You know, yeah. if they know what they want to do, let them do it. Yeah. Um, we got our life experience later. Yeah. You know, um, so a few years out of medical school, my husband and I decided to go backpacking around the world, which for a whole year, which was more or less our Great. gap year. Yeah. That was the best for me. Yeah. I, mean, I wasn't a very good student, but the, <laughs> the three years that I took backpacking, yeah. um, it just shaped me to do, want to go back and do these kind of things. So it was wonderful, I thought. Yeah. You truly know what person you are yeah. when you yeah. come back. Yeah. So. I don't think you can be prescriptive. Some people are ready to go straight yeah. from high school. Some people do need a gap year. Um, I think we have to provide a wide diversity of ways of getting in mm. because we need a wide diversity of doctors with different life experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's that. H- having said that, there's a certain practicality. So you have to do your research. Almost all the medical schools will require certain prerequisite subjects. Yeah. You know, and so do your research. Don't cut yourself off at the knees by, you know, not taking those subjects. Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, because the alternative then is having to do an entire undergraduate, like doing a Bachelor of Biomed Science yeah, or something. Yeah, of right. course. Instead of taking Year 12 Biology. You're like, well, just take Year 12 Biology. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so do your research, know your prerequisites, get them ticked off. But all the medical schools are decreasing their prereqs. Yeah. Yes, so they don't. Do you think that's you. to cast a wider net? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and also recognizing that pure science nerds, and I use the word nerds not in a derogatory way because I'm count, a nerd. I count myself as one as well. But I'm pure pure science nerds, of course, we need them. You know, you need some of those in medicine. But if you select an entire cohort that's all nerds, yes, that's not you biased your cohort. It's <laughs> like that's not going to be what the community needs. That's right. <laughs> That's right. No, I agree. That's definitely not what the community needs. I, I was talking to a friend. She's French. She's she's a postdoc here in, in Queensland. She said that, and I don't know if this is the way the French system still works. She said anyone can get into medicine first year. She said there was a thousand students or a bit over a thousand students in her cohort. But what they do is you do the subjects you need to do and they just take the top. They basically take the cream off the top. Right, so everyone does it, and they get the top ten percent, and they're the ones that move off to do medicine, which I thought was an interesting approach. Um, but again, it, you're biasing a, a cohort in one, in one way or another. The question I want to ask you, and I'm always interested in this, is that when you go into medicine young, so you went in at seventeen, mm-hmm. and compare that to those who go in mid thirties who have had certain life experience, would you say that? Medicine, because you were young, medicine has actually shaped who you are as a you, – you grew up with medicine, right? And so in a way it would have shaped who you are as a person and it's part of your existence now compared to somebody mid-30s that probably see themselves as going into medicine as opposed to you grew up within I'm, – I'm trying to articulate this a bit better and I'm not doing a very good job <laughs> here. But – you grew up with medicine and then they jump into it from the outside in a, in a way. Yeah. Do, you th- do you feel that medicine has shaped you in a way that they wouldn't get? And is that a benefit or a detriment or how do you see that? Well, I mean, what we do know is that somewhere between a quarter and a half of all medical school cohorts have either one or both parents who are already in medicine. Really? Mm. I didn't know that. Every wow. year when you get your new cohorts in the first years and say – Put up one hand if you've got one parent and put up both hands if you've got both parents and all the sea of hands goes up. So between uh, a quarter and a half. 
And that doesn't necessarily give us a as diverse a cohort as we would like. And so, mm. yes, it is a natural advantage if you've got someone in the field who can guide you as to, you know, what subjects to do, what you need to study. Here, let me introduce you to people who can help you with your research or guide your applications. Yeah, so or, do you think that's because of they have that's because of opportunity or that's because of interest? Like do they go in because they've just been exposed to medicine and now they're more interested than the, anybody else or simply they've got parents within medicine and so they've just got more opportunity to get into medicine. You know, they're, they're a bit more privileged in order to do so. Or do you think it's a bit of both? How do you see that? A bit of both. Yeah. I had this illustrated to me. Um, there's a consultant in our unit who comes from a family of tradies. And mm. my conversations with them have really opened my eyes as to how much your family background gives you um, in terms of just navigating tertiary education. Yeah. He said, you know, he came from, I think they were from rural Melbourne, his family are all carpenters and plumbers and whatnot. And when he went to university, first of all, he had to deal with his family going, oh, hoity-toity are we, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also kind of arriving at the big city, navigating around campus, figuring out where he was supposed to be. Yeah. And simple things like he didn't realise he could talk to the lecturers for the first year. Gotcha. You know, no yeah. no one in his family had ever been to tertiary education. So no one had thought to say, hey, you know, if you don't understand that assignment, just – go and chat to your lecturer. Yeah, they're a person. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. They want to help you get through. You know, when you come from a family of tradies in rural Victoria somewhere, university is made out to be some dog-eat-dog rat race, you know, only the really super smart get there and it's really competitive and you've got to be the best and blah, blah. So he sat there terrified thinking, I can't open my mouth and ask questions because everyone's going to see me for the 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 tradie kid that I am. And so you realise that, my upbringing where I I knew – I mean, my, my father was a lecturer at the med school. I, I actually knew the layout of med school. I knew where his office was. He mm. gave me a lift every morning, <laughs> you know. Um, I knew a lot of the lecturers by name because they came to our Christmas parties. Yes, you of know. course. Um, the subject matter was something I'd been reading since I was a teenager. Yeah. You know, I was happy to sit in the front row. I was happy to put my hand up and ask questions, you know. And so you realise that – when Amazing. people say the cream rises to the top or we only select the best, you're like, yeah, but do you realise that the playing field is not level? Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. And so as teachers ourselves, we have to reach out. You know, we – it's the responsibility of us to kind of notice who's quiet in our groups and go, hey, did you want to ask a question to me, you know, not in front of the rest of the class? Yeah. Or I noticed that you're the only one who hasn't chatted to me this week about this assignment that I wrote badly. <laughs> you know, you know, da, da, da. You know, it's for us to be actively levelling that playing field for them and not just expecting. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Uh, we, we do need to make ourselves more available to them. Uh, and I think there is something there. There are students who just will not talk to the lecturer and they'll, they'll ask everybody else except going to the source You know, like if it's about an assignment, they'll ask 20 other students. Just ask the person who wrote the assignment. We're happy to give you a hand. You just let us let us know. Yeah. Um, But we all think that we're all lovely and approachable and da-da-da. You don't realise what they come with. You know, like my colleague. I mean, he's a consultant surgeon now. Um, But you don't realise that he had come with probably years of, you know, kitchen table discussion from his family about, University yes. being this far off ivory tower where, you know, really, really smart people not like us. Yes. You know, yes. kind of did their special stuff. Yeah. 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 Don't 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 put anyone out. Don't 
make a scene, don't do anything like that. You yeah, need to we have to be more aware of how we come across and how we reach out to those people and not assume that just because the door to our office is open that people feel free to walk through it. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. So, so high school, you've started medicine. How did you go within medicine? Did you Was it an enjoyable experience? Was it a difficult experience? Were... How many how many women were within your cohort? Uh, did you find that there were issues associated with that at all? Or I just want to know really what were the pros, what were the cons, what were the barriers and limitations? I know that's a very big sort of question to ask. Um, but, yeah, let us know. How was it? So New Zealand 1990s um, was still quite a conservative society but the med school had gotten as far as getting a 50-50 split for gender. Wow. Wow. Um, there was still a fair bit of, you know, entrenched sexism and racism, but the thing was there were equal numbers of women and men. What we were missing, of course, was the role modelling. So you looked across your lecturers and consultants and there were far more men than there were women. Yeah. The women who were there were absolutely spectacular. Yeah. You know? um, the... When I did my clinical rotations, the one thing that I definitely knew I didn't want to do was surgery. Oh, wow. Yeah, How's so that? my first student <laughs> rotation, you know, I wasn't invited to scrub. You know, male colleagues, people would be like, oh, you look like you want to be a surgeon, come and scrub. Of course, no one thinks that the very quiet, very nerdy, tiny Chinese woman in the corner wants to be a surgeon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the expectation back then was that you attended theatre even if you were not doing anything. We wouldn't do it these that way these days. Yeah. You know, in line with adult learning, we're like, look, if you're not scrubbed and all you're looking at is the backs of the operating team, <laughs> then obviously, you know, use it as a, as a prompt to learn more. You know, look up the anatomy or mm. read up on the next case, the one that's going to come through next on the list or mm. go and find a patient in the pre-op bay and take their history and examine them before their operation. You know, do something yeah. for your own learning, but don't yeah. just stand there looking at everyone's backs. Yeah. But that was the expectation in the 1990s. It was like stand there and, you know, adore the surgical team. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I found the whole thing very unproductive mm. and just thought this is long and boring and also really oppressive. So the classic surgical stereotype, you know, three hours into the operation, you wouldn't have seen a thing. They'd summon you up and a little chink would open up between the surgeon and the assistant mm. and they'd point at something and go, what's that structure? <laughs> oh, and, of yeah. course, you hadn't seen any of the dissection, so you'd be like, um... Um, and they'd be like, oh, don't they teach you anything at med school and send you back to the corner <laughs> where you were, you know. And so after, I think, I can't remember, the student rotations these days are sort of seven or eight weeks, but I don't remember how long I was on it, but I knew after that I was like, surgery, definitely not for me, don't feel like I belong. So, And this and is how this self-perpetuating, self-selecting cycle just continues. That's it. That's it. So we know the literature says, you know, at the point of graduation there's already a gender split. Yeah. Uh, when you ask people what specialties they intend to do, there's much fewer women who want to do s surgery than men. Mm -hmm. And it only widens as you go through the training. Wow. So then what did you want to do? And then how did you get into medicine? Uh, how did you get into surgery? Well, um, so in New Zealand there's only two medical schools, Auckland and Otago. And those feed out to the same small group of about 30 hospitals, some really large and tertiary, um, you know, in the big cities and some really tiny, wee, hick country ones. Yeah. Um, and it just depends what you're looking for. Um, so, but you can opt to be employed as a solo or as a pair. 
And my husband had not been a particularly strong academic performer. I was, you know, little Miss Nerdy Swat. So, mm-hmm. I, I so was, you were both doing it at the same time? We were. Same year? Same year. Oh, okay. So same you studied year. together? We were study mates. Yeah. We were study mates. Um, and because he was even younger than me. So he was 16 wow. when we started. Wow. Yes, I know. And Your children. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've got a daughter. I do. How old is your daughter? She's 12 now. That, that's it's not far off. Sixteen is not far off. Well, that. I do have a sixteen-year-old who's off to university, age sixteen himself. So it's <laughs> there. You, oh, what really? Yes, but not into medicine, thank goodness. So how did he get to university at sixteen? I know I'm digressing he here. He actually but. did his first semester when he was fifteen. <laughs> wow! As part of the uni- as part of the high school university the high school partnership program. Yeah, the high school suggested it because he was going to be terribly bored otherwise. Wicked smart kid. Yeah. Well, it's not a surprise, but <laughs> so he's a wicked. Well, so what? I, I know. Again, I'm digressing here. But what's he doing? What's he going to university for? He wants for? to be an engineer. Wow. Mm. So he did an engineering based subject in high school. Sort of. He has this mad plan that he wants to put solar panels across the Sahara Desert, um, because he was like, "Well, no one lives there, right?" And so it's just useless Price land, why don't you just yeah. use it to drive the energy requirements of Africa, which is desperately in need of a, yeah. a reliable power supply. And I was like, I, I think you'll find that it's not actually unoccupied land. Also, that Africa being Africa, there's about 10 countries you'd have to negotiate with. And some <laughs> yeah, of, some of them are shift. frankly at war with each other. Yeah. So what he actually did, he identified that as a learning need, like all good adults <laughs> should, and did his first semester in international relations. Oh, wow. And so came home spouting stuff about statehood and what statehood means and the functions of a state. And you know. so, so what I like about this, though, is that it didn't discourage him to change his plan. It encouraged him to find out more so he would have a better argument against his mother on well, how to do it. It won't surprise you as an educator that I've tried to um, establish adult learning patterns in my own kids. That's great. And I think I've managed to prove that even little kids can, you know, we call it an adult learning style, but actually kids, if they're given the opportunity to, will do exactly the same things. They'll be like, I'm really interested in this and I'm oh, going to totally. find out more and off they go. Totally. This is one thing I've, because I've got a I've got a 10-month-old and I've got a, a four-year-old and Matt's got a seven-month-old. Um, I've found that... You don't really need to talk to your children like children. Yes, uh, they're they're not dumb. That's the thing. They they people think that kids are dumb and then they become smart. Mm. They're wicked smart. Yeah, they're wicked smart. You just could give them the opportunity in order to to demonstrate that. And you know, my daughter, oh, she's got the she's got the periodic table, this massive periodic <laughs> table um, on the wall next to her bed. She knows the first. Th- she's when she was three, she knew the first thirty five elements of the periodic table and not because I sat her down and said you need to do this the first question was what is this I'm like well Tia this is the periodic table (laughs) shall we go through it um with so with your kids did you did you do anything specific uh, and this is a very selfish question because I I want my kids to be as successful as possible as every parent does but did you do anything different with your children did you do certain readings or do activities or did you let them do their own thing and do you think it was mainly the environment that they're in that made them at this, you know, you got a 16-year-old who's at university. <laughs> yeah, so I think the thing is working as a surgeon, I couldn't be, you know, the classic Chinese tiger mum, the one who gives up their career and devotes all their attentions to 
hot housing their kids, you know, <laughs> dr- drilling them um, to memorize this and that. It's like, yeah, that was never going to happen. Mum, mummy's got you know lives to save. Sorry, yeah. so you're going to spend many hours in childcare. Um, yeah. <laughs> is basically it. But what you can give them is the tools. You know, yes. you can give them bookshelves and books and posters on the wall and mm. smart people. I mean, thankfully, my family, there's no lack of smart people to surround them with, you know. Mm. Auntie so-and-so or uncle so-and-so comes for a visit and you're off for a fun conversation about <laughs> law, medicine, engineering or any, you know, yeah. many, many interesting things. So you, yeah. sur- you enrich them and then they'll just find their own way. And there are some n- non-negotiables. Like, you will go to school and you will learn math, science and English. Yeah. You know, like, you're not going anywhere in this world if you can't learn to read. Yes. <laughs> mm. Yes, it's true. It's just a truth. Yeah. yeah. So there are some non-negotiables. But beyond that, we, you know, we've encouraged our kids to just follow their noses. Cool. You know. If, I love that. If you've got spare time to be reading about this thing that's completely outside the curriculum, mm. go for it. Go for it. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I, I I know, we digress. From there. Um, where were we at? Where we're going through? Well, let's go to medical school again. Yes. Um, so you've already crossed off surgery. Now yeah, you that's did, right. You did talk about that general practice was something that you are pondering upon. Yes. But there's also the thought that medical students, as they go through specialties, they, they change their specialty every time they do a new specialty, other than surgery for you. Yes. Um, did, did your thinking change as you went through the five – was it five years – so six years, six so double years. double bachelors. So yeah. did it continually change or did it kind of stay in general practice for a lot of it? It was mainly in general practice and if I hadn't gone into general practice I probably would have done psychiatry because if you yeah. look at my academic record I won the behavioural science prize and um, interviewed for the psych viva, like did really well and then recorded a psych like how to do a psych interview video that the medical school then used for another 10 years, <laughs> wow. you know, as their introduction to psych interviewing sort yeah. of thing, which was confusing for a lot because during that 10 years, uh, I recorded the video in my very final year and during the next post-grad 10 years, of course, I became a consultant surgeon. So you mm. get these medical <laughs> students from the med school turning up, <laughs> looking at you and going, wait, that, I know your face. that woman looks familiar. Wait, isn't she the psych lady? Why is she the <laughs> surgeon? <Yeah. laughs> so, so you had a passion for psych? Is that what that was? Well, I just love talking to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm fascinated by them and their lives and the way their brains work. Yeah, behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, – the psych interview is less an interrogation and more a way of just getting their inner thoughts to come out. Yeah. Right. So it's all very, you know. So the interview is like talking to your therapist. It's kind of like <laughs> nod, nod, mm-hmm. do tell me more. <laughs> or, you know, can you clarify that for me? Or Trying to un- yeah, identify yeah. underlying psychopathies. The, the, the thing is to say as little as possible and let their natural, you know, and put them at ease. And, yeah, you know, yeah and of b- course. And they'll tell you everything after a little bit. Yes. Um, you leave a long enough pause. People will tell you that people don't like quiet moments within conversation and they will fill it with their entire existence. Yeah. So, so I, at, you know, I thought GP because of the lifestyle yeah. um, and its compatibility with being a mum. So did you have kids at this point? No, no. So kid, did you have kids throughout your so medical the first, school? The older child arrived while midway through my surgical training, my advanced surgical training, and yep. then the second one shortly after I became a consultant. Okay. So a little bit late to motherhood. And so where is your husband at this point in terms of specialty? Where is he going? So he, I mean, you or know, in keeping go. with arriving at med school age just 16, he mm. got into his specialty training at PGY2 level, so post-grad 
second year um, okay. and as a result of which we ended up moving to Sydney in our third year postgrad um, because that was his first training assignment. Okay. And w- what was that on? In psychiatry. He's a, oh, he was he's psychiatry. A, he's a psychogeriatrician. He specialises oh. in the over 65s. And was did you was a writing on the wall for him in medical school? Was he going down that path? Yeah, he was yeah. published before he even graduated. He was oh. a really smart little cookie. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So you know, like you've got to marry a man like that. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm really interested in um, uh, being being so um, dedicated as as you are going through med school. Obviously, doing getting in and doing surgical training. Actually, let's 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 finalize this point. Again, how did you get into surgery? I, I want let's, um, let's hit on that because then I want to ask you about um, the difficulties associated with both motherhood and work life and. Obviously, having to to leave for a little bit and then come back and what all that was like. So let's just shelve that for a second. What? How surgery? How did, how did that come about? I mean, I don't want to say this too loudly, but it happened almost accidentally for me. And I don't want to say it too loudly because a lot of my colleagues devoted years sure, of their lives yeah, yeah. to yeah. getting into surgery, which is a really competitive specialty. The best things happen serendipitously. Yeah. Right? So I don't want to discount their efforts, but for me, it just happened accidentally. So the first thing was I ac- accidentally passed the. In- tree exams for what was then called basic surgical training. Um, so you just aced it and went, whoops. Well, <laughs> Whoop, we, didn't mean to do that. <laughs> yeah, so h- husband, apart from being brilliant at psychiatry, had kind of let some of his other subjects lapse. So he graduated med school more or less in the middle of the year academically. Yeah. You, know, you know, like I was at the top of the bell curve and he was pretty solidly in the middle. Yeah. So when we got our job assignments, we were – posted out to a tiny wee hospital in a place called Rotorua. And I yeah, don't know yeah. if you've been there, but it's got a tiny, quite small hospital. And back then it ran on about eight junior staff. Oh, wow. No advanced trainees at that wow. point. So quite junior people in their first few years out of med school and then the consultants. Wow. And out of the eight of us that year, one of them was my old mate, Andrew, who I had gone to primary school. Oh, there you go. And he was one of those declared, you know, there's a few in every medical school cohort, you know, he was like surgery or die. I'm going to be a surgeon, yeah. you know, yeah. and he wanted someone to study with him towards those exams, which are big exams. Yeah. You know, it takes a good sort of six, seven months of hard study to get through them. Um, and so, you know, we'd sit there drilling on each other on, you know, the structure of the brachial plexus or the structures <laughs> crossing the front of the ankle or whatever yeah. it was, you know, just drilling each other. And then at the end of our second year, my husband said to me, you've done all the study for it. Why don't you sit actually sit the exam? <laughs> yeah. Because it'll look really good on your application to general practice. Yeah, training. yeah, absolutely. You know, shows that, you know, and it's all stuff you'll need to know as a GP anyway. Yes. Anatomy, physiology, pathology, right? Yeah. So I sat it and I passed it. Of course, the moment you sit the, past the surgical exams, the bosses are like, oh. So you want to be a surgeon. Yeah. And the good thing about being in a small town is that a lot of the sort of big town hierarchies aren't there. So yeah. the bosses are like, oh, excellent. Let me show you how to do this procedure or that procedure. Ah, uh, cool. Yeah, which is not an opportunity that a lot of post-grad two years get yeah. in a big city. You know, you're still an intern or a resident at that point, just, mm. you know, filling in, doing paperwork basically. Um, so it was a lovely opportunity. And then – the year after that, we went um, to Sydney for my husband's specialty training. And because I already had the exams, they upgraded me to a registrar level oh, position, wow. which is also pretty unusual for a postgrad three. So how old uh, would you have been at this time? Mm, 24. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that, at that point, you were on a surgical program, but was it official? I was official? a surgical registrar, yeah. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, 
And then the year after that, I scuttled my chances or so they told me. They were like, because uh, I was like, husband and I are going backpacking for a whole year. Bye. Um, and they were like, oh, you've got to show your deter- you know, your, your commitment to surgery and you've got to do this. And of course that. I did. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Um, so I went, that's fine. I'll just go back to GP. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, back to plan A. Yeah. Um, so we went backpacking. We came back and after I got back, the bosses were at me again going, so when are you going to apply? And what? I was like, but you said that I'd scuttled my chances and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, I hadn't realised at that point how much corridor conversation happens. So bosses, I know now as a boss, that bosses talk amongst themselves and say, this person's going to be good, we need to get them on. Yeah. Yeah. And so I presume that sort of conversation had been happening because – So they didn't want uh, to lose you. That's why they were saying it. Yeah. They were, they were worried that you were going to go backpacking and then discover Machu Picchu and stay for another five years and not come back and so – the fact that you came back, they're just like, okay, let's pick up where you left Well, the off. thing is, uh, you know, um, because I'd already done a year as a surgical registrar and could operate, you're quite useful on the surgical roster. Yeah. So you kind of fall back into the surgical reg. Like I was going to be a hopeless medical registrar or anything else. Like that. You know, <laughs> it seemed the natural kind of job for me to fall into. Yeah. So they were like, oh, excellent, Rhea's back. We'll pop her on the roster. We know she can do all this stuff. Mm. And then before you know it, you're there as happy as a pig and mug, mug yeah. you know, with your elbows in someone else's belly and the bosses are like, so when are you applying? <laughs> so you um, love surgery when you got started getting into it then? Yes, but I love everything. <laughs> yes. Right. And, and because you're at a smaller <laughs> hospital, the culture wasn't as toxic as you had previously experienced in well, no, through med school. By now, I was at Westmead. Auckland, so my third oh, yes, year was at right. Westmead, Sorry, and yes. then when I came back, I came back to Auckland oh, Hospital, which was another. Both went back to NZ. Yeah. yeah. And so, how did you find the surgical culture at these places uh, now? Still steeply hierarchical and still quite sexist. I remember yeah. one of the, and and it wasn't badly meant. You know, it's really important. It's easy these days to see things very black and white and yeah. to say, oh, those dinosaurs, old boomers, you know, yeah. nasty, sexist, old white guys, you know. that None of that is fair. These people have supported my career. They've mm. been great mentors to me, but they did in all their wisdom. You know, one of them took me aside and was like, Rhea, I hope you know what you're doing because it's really hard for a woman in surgery. And then proceeded to tell me some long sob story about a husband and wife pair who had both been surgeons and – both of them struggled with the surgery parenthood thing and then the whole thing broke down in a big divorce and the kids rear, the poor kids, think of the kids. Yeah. You know, not yeah. realising that what he was saying was that it was the woman's job to pick up the pieces yeah. somehow. You yep. know, it's yep. I'm like, yep. but wait, they both divorced each other, right? Like why is it exactly. the woman's job to not become a surgeon to stop this from happening? Exactly. Yeah, so he didn't realise how sexist he was being, but the point was he did it with good intention yeah. yes, and he did, you know, write references for me and support my applications and mm. all this sort mm. of thing. So I think we need more nuance in this area. It's not going to help us progress either surgery or any other sort of field yeah. by turning what's currently bias and stereotyping against poor people, indigenous people, women, whatever, disabled people. You know, it's not going to help us if we turn that sort of bias and stereotyping around and just apply it to a different group. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So what can we do with this then? How can we how can we change this? I assume it's it, this culture is still embedded within surgery. Yeah. Um I I've had I've had surgery a couple of times and I think they've all been male surgeons not by a, a choice, but again statistically I think I was I'm going to get a male surgeon just because there's more male surgeons than, than yeah, female. Yeah, a lot more. 
Yeah. 87% male. Oh, that high. In the fellowship, yeah. 13% wow. women. And so do you think that's again because it's women select against it when they're going through medicine because they just go, this is just... Or the experience like you spoke yeah. about. Yeah, some of it is what you see. So you might not think that you fit into the surgical mould mm. because you go on your rotations and a large proportion of what you see is male surgeons. Mm. And then, of course, there's the act of discrimination, the fact that you're often not asked to scrub as often, that people assume you won't be interested so they don't bother to teach you the kind of more advanced stuff or show you that really cool case that they just did last night. You know, yeah. I'll tell your male colleague. <laughs> yeah. um, or the kind of benign sexism, as in almost every woman who says, I'm quite interested in surgery, gets the long speech about, yes, but when are you going to have your kids? Right. Yeah. I don't know that any of my male colleagues have had that speech no. delivered yeah. to them. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. You know, and so there's that. Um, and we also know, um, so quite a lot of my qualitative research is in the postgrad years one to five before they actually get on to formalised training. But we know from those qualitative focus groups that there's still a lot of sexist microaggressions. Mm. The things that subtly imply you don't belong. Yes. Yeah. Which is enough to make people go, I just don't want to do this. Yeah. It's like the scrubs don't come in my size or of course, yeah. um, the equipment's not built for me. You know, like the operating tables do not go down low enough for me. I have to stand on a little step stool to operate I was just gonna a lot ask of the time. That, yeah. And that's just because traditionally with so many male surgeons, there's not many of them who are five foot tall, mm. right? So why would they ever need to get an operating table that went down that far? And yeah. so, you know, it, it's water off a duck's back to me now, but if you sit down and think about it, you're like, why do I bother working in a world that's totally not built for me? Yes, exactly. And mm. there's, there's, there's significant challenges yeah. And it's it honestly isn't fair to have one group of people where it's not a challenge at all, it's nothing, and then another group of people who want to do that, and it's a significant challenge, and not necessarily big things to change. Like they they just be mindful of others. Yeah, we've had some wins. So you know, um, some of the staplers that we use inside human bodies to join, say, two ends of a bowel together. Mm-hmm. Um, when they were first made, they had these giant hand grips. I couldn't even get my hands around them. Wow. So the rep. You know, the reps are trying to get the hospital to buy these bits of equipment. They're quite expensive, so, you know, profit margin, blah, blah, blah. blah. Mm. Um, And I'd sit there going, you know, you've made this so I can't actually actuate this stapler except by using my knee. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Like I'll hold on to one side of this hand grip with my hand and push the other side against my knee. Wow. Because you've designed it for people with giant hands, right? Yeah. yeah. And they'd kind of look a bit shamefaced. And then – a year or two later, the model would come out with much smaller, sleeker hand grips. Oh, be like, good. Oh, someone listened to me. Yes. And possibly others. Yes, know? exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they've improved a lot. Okay. You know, every, year by year, oh, good. things are improving. And the Because um, as it turns out, it's an ergonomic things. Things that are big and chunky and everything give you muscle sprains as well. Yeah. So everything getting sleeker and smaller and easier to actuate, less force required – fewer weird body angles, uh, you, you know, it, it's good for all of us. Uh, yes. Inclusion, I shouldn't have to say this, but inclusion is good for all of us. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. It makes sense. So if we if we go and uh, I'd love to know how, because you, you are a mother and a surgeon. Yes. How did you go about the, when you had your children, mm-hmm. and obviously you you've got a, it's inevitable. You have to leave work for a certain period of time. Yes. Was that a hard decision when you went back? Were 
things put into place that allowed for you to leave with peace of mind and know that you can come back and pick things up where you left off? Or is the, the way it's set up really difficult and basically set up so that you go, oh, I can't really have kids because if I go, what am I going to come back to? It, it's, it's all unknown. I'd love to know about all that and whether it's, it's different now than when it was when you had your children and so forth. Yeah. So I'm kind of in the middle of a change that had been happening long before I became a surgeon. So the women surgeons of the generation before me literally were sometimes told, if you dare to get pregnant while we're training you, don't, you know, we'll just chuck you off training. Jeez, wow. Um, New Zealand legislation, I think, very similar to Australian legislation, made that illegal. You know, you couldn't actually sack someone just because they felt pregnant. Yeah. Um, but the actual practicalities of it in surgery were still, when I became a res- uh, registrar, that there was this unofficial but unspoken thing that you would try your best not to get pregnant while you were training. God. Um, of course, pregnancy just sort of happens because – I'll tell you, <laughs> this might be too much information for viewers, but if you're working all weird hours of day and night, you get back home and you're like, did I take the pill today or not? Of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. birth, birth control is actually a little tricky when you're working the sort of hours we work. So, yeah. you know, pregnancy number one was a surprise, but, you know, so it was. And we were, husband and I were very clear, we were like, well, babe, you know, we're not having an abortion just for the sake of surgical training. Yeah. So I said that to my bosses and same thing, good intentions, but, poorly implemented they were like oh don't know how to you know haven't had to deal with this very much and so they kind of cobbled together a a process and they were very supportive really but Mm. the thing was there was a whole year of training that was not accredited for me Mm. because there had always been the assumption that the trainee would be male that they would if they chose to become a father they would have a partner who would take care of all that childcare stuff yeah so it wasn't a sexist thing, but the actual rules were you could not take more than five weeks off in any six-month term. Jesus. Yeah. And so because of the fact that babies, you know, labour starts when labour starts and babies deliver when they deliver, yeah. I unless you manage to take only ten weeks off and it's five weeks off the end of one term and five <laughs> weeks off the beginning of next, then both of those terms will be discredited. Wow. See, so, well – you should have planned this unplanned <laughs> child <laughs> to the T. That's it. <laughs> Isn't That's that outrageous? It. Yeah. And my so God. we've we've carried on working myself, my generation have carried on working on this. And so now as a surgical trainee, there's a lot more flexible options to make sure that people are not penalized. I mean, this right. is this is human nature. Yeah. I mean, this I just I think it's so outrageous that it it's like that. You'd think that if somebody becomes pregnant, you'd be like this is wonderful. Let's do everything we possibly can to make sure, one, you have a wonderful pregnancy and birth and early life for the child, and two, you can come back to your job. I just Isn't that a no-brainer? I just For me, I just don't under, yeah. understand that. And it wasn't a sexist thing. You know, the same regulations caught out colleagues who broke their ankle and literally couldn't stand to operate, Yeah, you know, or had a significant mental health you know, event or whatever, yeah. you know, anyone who missed five weeks, more than five weeks off one six-month term, that entire term was discredited. Wow. So, again, it's that thing about inclusion helps all of us. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can understand, you know, without thinking of those things, why they would put something like that in place. You know, there's, there's got to be certain rules and regulations that generally people need to stick to, but there's always extenu- always there's extenuating circumstances that should be forgiven and Forgiven is probably the wrong word, but need to be taken into consideration. And pregnancy 
and yeah. breaking a bone and mental health, yeah. I would think fit within those extenuating circumstances. They're all important things that you can't Well, that's the help. great fallacy. You know, we all go into healthcare and the healthcare, <laughs> yeah. you know, the medicine and nursing and midwifery and physio, you know, there's this thing about, you know, we have to be kind to our patients, put their health needs first. It's this weird thing that we don't extend it to our own colleagues. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. It's like, wait, but we're in a business that cares for people. Yeah. But only when they're the one in the bed. Yeah. Not the one when you're actually staff. Yeah. It's like, why is Isn't that? Isn't that amazing? I know. A, a, a friend of mine who's a surgeon over in the UK, he did a Twitter poll recently, like a couple of weeks ago, about, um, you know, if, if you are within healthcare and you got a head cold, would you currently take the day off or would you go to work sick? And overwhelmingly, I think it was like 70% of people, and this is right now with COVID and everything, said they'll still go to work with the head cold. And I just, I was just amazed. Yeah. But again, it's just that whole thing where it's just like the rule doesn't apply to us. We yeah. look after your health, our health comes yeah. second. And it's not because they haven't thought about the risk that they actually have COVID and might infect people. Mm. It's usually because they're like, but they'll be short-staffed. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. You know, my colleagues will be doing it no, really hard. It's the system's fault. That's it. Yeah. And, and it's sort of like, wait, how did we set up a health system, which looks after six, sick people, <laughs> that actually doesn't have enough fat in the system to look after the sick people <laughs> who are our staff? Yeah. yeah. You know, there's no not enough backfill, not enough yeah, people Absolutely. to step in. So how did you go? You had your first child – and had you, you were did they set everything in place so that you could come back and finish what you were doing? Yeah, I mean, on paper they were like, "This is great, you'll come back." Yes, yes, we'll support you if you want to breastfeed. You know, da da da. In practice, you did still get quite a lot of microaggressions. You know, people would frown at you as they walked past. You know, what's this baby doing in here? Or ask right. you to leave. Yeah. You know, I'd be really? sitting there with a sleeping baby, not making any fuss, and they'd be like, "I think you need to take the baby outside." Oh You'd be my like, god. Really? What? Why? Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, but I did push out because um, you might have noticed I'm a slightly stubborn sort. So <laughs> I did push the boat out as far as I could. Yeah. So I did breastfeed at work. I did pump at work and put the little bottles in the tea room fridge yeah. so where everyone could see them. You know, yeah. I just wanted to normalize this as much as possible. Yeah. And sure enough, in subsequent cohorts, I had women saying, I'm glad you did that, Rhea, because when it came to my turn, I could point at you and go, but Rhea did it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, there's nothing more normal than breastfeeding your child, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, and it needs to be needs to be done. Yeah, and as long as it didn't affect the clinical work. Like, obviously, I'm not breastfeeding a child while seeing someone in clinic. Yes. You know, but it's like if I'm at a teaching event and I happen to be breastfeeding my child, it's like if that – somehow stops you from learning whatever it is you're – that's exactly. on you, not on me. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you don't have a scalpel in one hand and your child in yeah. the other, Yeah. right? It, it, I, I, don't, I don't get it. I've had um, – I mean, I have students during – come into my lectures with their kids and I, I love it. I, obviously, as long as the kid's not screaming at the top of their lungs and nobody can hear what I'm saying. And but I think everybody's reasonable. No, that's not – you don't – Say, sorry, the kid can't be in here and they're sitting there watching their iPad happily, you know. It's, it's, it's not – you don't come in with the impression that the kid's going to make a noise and going to be a disruption or anything. It's, it's wonderful when the kids come in actually. Well, it just speaks to the culture of our yeah. institutions. I think one of the reasons I've always had an affinity with Bond was that um, when I was on maternity leave, Bond was like um, – normally you deliver this particular lecture to the year threes, but 
you know, you're three months into maternity leave, um, what are your thoughts? And I'd be like, well, I have to bring a breastfeeding child. And they were like, oh, that'll be cool. Um, what would you want us to do when the baby cries? And so they actually set it up so there were two staff members on hand through this lecture and sure enough the baby cried. And they took this baby and walked it around the building. I mean, you can imagine a newborn baby getting walked around <laughs> a university building. It was like no work got done exactly. for that half hour. Everyone was busy cooing over exactly. this baby. But the fact that as an organisation it was like totally no problem for them. They were like, oh, yep, yep, we can do this. We'll, you know, they, they – Good, yeah. good. And, that's how you get quality. You know, you're like, well, they got me as a permanent lecturer because yes, that's right. they were happy to have me support me like that. And what a simple way to support somebody. Yeah. I mean, I've had students come in and I bring the kids up and use them in like examples, on yeah. a, you know, on like a, a proton pump and the kid can <laughs> be a pump and help throw balls, you know, across, <laughs> across the room and things like that, you know, you if you just use it to your advantage and not see it as a negative from the get-go, again, it's that perspective that we have. There's an essential disconnect. So all the literature tells us that diversity is better for yes. organisations. Better yeah. organisational performance, better financial performance, fewer complaints against healthcare, you know, all that sort of thing. It makes us better, but somehow on the ground, diversity is often seen as worse. Mm. You know, like somehow we have to really make accommodations. Well, I think it's that. People are lazy. Yeah. People are lazy and they don't like changing the status quo. People are used to doing these things for so long and then when you tell them, you actually have to change the way that you think and act. Mm. Oh, are you serious? I'm really comfortable with the way I'm thinking and acting right now. You go, yeah, but the, what you're doing is pretty shitty to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, Can so I ask a question in terms of going on to specialty program? Mm -hmm. So you did your exam, you got on program. At what point do you – select your specialty of surgery like is there a point where just to get on programming you've already gone into the general surgical stream or is it do you kind of still get to do kind of subspecialty it's a bit messy <laughs> so there are some specialties there that are their own separate specialty right streams yep. so if you want to do pediatric surgery for example you apply to pediatric surgery there's a general catch-all for all the leftovers, which is general surgery. And that's what you've chosen? That's, yeah. That's what you are? And when I was coming through training, the majority – general surgery was the main thing because most surgeons were going to be general surgeons, often in rural locations. Right. Very – subspecialty training was actually quite a rare thing and you went off to America or the UK to get that training, whereas nowadays you don't have necessarily have to do that. Mm. You get training of the same level in Sydney or Brisbane. Oh, okay. or, and they're know, usually fellowships? Fellowships, yeah. yeah. But back then, you know, the majority of surgeons were going to be generalists. Yeah. And you'd be like – That's you know, everything, right? Yeah, and you'd be like the surgeon in Kyogle until the end of your days. Yeah. And yeah. you'd <laughs> deliver the babies and you'd – Well, that's what I was going to say. So I grew up in Taree, New yeah. South Wales, and my mum tells me that you know, the general surgeon delivered me. Yeah. But it also repaired dad's ankle that he smashed at work. Yeah. And so he'd be orthopedics, he would do this and wow. that. And so he could do everything. Yes. Um, so is that kind of how you trained to begin with and then you subspecialised or did you really kind of choose your path pretty quickly? So again, it was a little bit accidental um, in that um, it was a two-tier system back then. It's not anymore. Um, so BST, basic surgical training, was what I did that, what I accidentally passed that exam to get into. Um, and basic surgical training was for everything. So you did a bit of orthopedics, a bit yeah. of urology, a bit of, you know. Um, and then 
AST, advanced surgical training, was where you chose your specialty. But if you hadn't chosen a specialty, you just went for general surgery. And general surgery included colorectal and endocrine and breast surgery and skin lumps and bumps and hernias and all sorts of okay. things. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then when you went into advanced training in general surgery, um, you could choose to do a four-year uh, advanced training or you could do a three plus two and that plus two was is what's now a specialty fellowship. Gotcha. So you could do three years of general surgery and then two and say liver. Okay. Yep. Or or you could just do four years straight and go out into a rural town still with that very broad base and be like your surgeon in Tari. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And I actually chose a four-year program because I had no idea what I wanted to do. But as it turned out, my last two years were in a predominantly breast unit and I was the beneficiary of a fair bit of gender bias, I suppose yeah. you could call it, because my male colleagues, you know, there were, I think, only five or six of us training, uh, women training into surgery, general surgery at that time in New Zealand, and so predominantly men, and as the allocations would come out every year, they'd be like, oh, I have to do another breast term, and I'd be like, I've got colorectal, do you want to swap? <laughs> 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 so my last two years were a pretty steady stream of breast rotations. And so by the time I came off the end of that and I was going, oh, I'm actually interested in breast. Maybe I should go and find my plus two, you know, fellowship. Mm. My bosses were like, don't be stupid, Rhea. You've, you've more or less done your plus two, you know, not in a formal sense, but mm. you've got as much experience as any here. We'll write you a nice letter um, <laughs> to join the breast subspecialty society thing. Wow. Yeah. Um, so... Wow, that's how it all happened. That's yeah. amazing. And so, with the with a lot of the the breast surgeries that you perform, are they mainly mastectomies or lump removals, or uh, what, what would you what would your typical list your your day's list be of when it comes to breast? Yeah, so breast surgery has come such a long way in the last twenty years, and of course, I've been had the great privilege of contributing to that by you know, doing the research on at least two innovative techniques. Oh, cool. So it used to be, you know, your choices were breast off or lump out. Yeah. You know, very simplistic. Of course, now we've got um, breast off and reconstruction in about 100 ways or, you know, lump out followed by upgrade to breast off if we find more or, you know, there's so many options now. And so the Mm. women now tell us that their challenge actually is there's too much choice. too much choice they're like i came out totally bamboozled i've got no idea which is the best option for me um wow so and of course which is a good thing it is a good thing yeah Yeah. and so it's not just the surgery it's that there have been advances in all our other treatments as well like in chemo and radiotherapy Mm. and hormonal therapy and targeted molecular you know genetic Mm. targeted ones and so the whole field has advanced there's much more options I mean, sometimes there are no options. Occasionally you have the conversation where you're like, this is really advanced. The only option is that the breast has to come off. It Mm. is not a wise thing to reconstruct you at this point. By the way, you're also going to need chemo, radiotherapy, blah, 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 and even then your chances are 10% or less. Yeah. I will totally understand if, you know, particularly if you're 80 or something, you actually decide not to proceed with any of it. Yeah. Which means we will... Um, go symptom-led, you know, we will yeah. treat symptoms but not embark on curative treatment. Um, the old-fashioned word for that was palliative care, but, mm. you know, we are all moving away from that idea that you just sort of get cast in the corner and your doctor says, there's nothing more I can yeah. do. Yeah, yeah. Because there's always lots more you can That's do. R- yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Lots more you can do, just that we won't cure you because we're going to 
just about kill you trying. Mm. So mm. totally understandable if you want to go for symptom-led management. But, you know, so sometimes people don't have a choice. Yes. But for the vast majority of people, because in Australia we are privileged and have a screening system, so we find most of our cancers early, mm. then they have lots of choices and it's just guiding them through to see what's important to them. So you spoke about research and being doing research within as a surgeon but also as an educator. Did you say that? Yes. Yeah. How important do you think um, for medical students to do research in their medical program but also you all, you're also here to get onto a, a specialty program, you have to do some degree of research now. Do you think that's a good thing or is it currently kind of just being window dressed a bit where they kind of just feel they have to do it for the sake of doing it and not really in it for what it is? Yeah, so we I'm part of a, I mean, I'm part of a number of research groups, but one of them is, is specifically looking at this across the sort of almost 50-something professional colleges of different specialties throughout Australasia, that they all have different requirements for research and that some of it is working in very paradoxical ways to drive large volumes of very low-quality research. Yeah. So things like we prioritise first-authored publications easiest way to do that is do a pathetic little study that publish you know it's like yeah yep. you're the first author but it's going to sink like a stone and not make any impact on anyone you know right. but to become a first author of a trial that is actually going to change practice is completely out of the reach mm. yes, most mm. of yes. Our, unless you like take significant time off to do it yeah yes. or unless you happen to be born into a family where your parent or someone you know is already you know the head of unit or whatever yeah. so then you end up selecting on privilege not on yeah. Yeah. ability absolutely right? so we do know that that is an issue at an at a um, undergrad level i'm like look we need them to understand what research means and how to assess research quality does that mean you should have to do your own research not so sure but that is probably you know doing is learning and mm. so doing their own research project is probably the quickest way to get them to understand what research quality means. Yeah, I think actually just an interesting side point there is um, within the COVID context, um, one of the ivermectin studies, I think it was the one from Egypt, mm. was actually picked up fraudulent from a medical student in the UK. Yes. He was reading through it and found that uh, it seemed that there was a lot of um, – uh, plagiarism yes and then i think they looked at the methodology and they found it was fraudulent as well and so it was really interesting that a medical student had that ability to do it i mean i, I think it's wonderful actually yeah yes yeah. you're yes. right so, so learn these skills as a medical student i think is great you know statistics and um, rigor in method methodology i think is great yeah so the medical schools now often require the students to do you know, a research requirement um, at Bond, it's like your learner's licence, you've got to clock up between 100 and 120 hours. But you can, if you want, drive your own project or you can clip yourself onto a larger project. It just mm. depends what your interest is and all the clinicians, you know, put in their various research projects, the ones that you could use an extra student. Mm. Um, and students want different things. So some of them have no, you know, they're like, I'll tick it off, but I recognise that I'm not going to be academic, I have no interest there. So I'll join a big unit and I know I'll probably get used as data entry yeah, slave, yeah, you know, yeah. or whatever, but that's okay, that's my 100 hours. Whereas others are like, I'm really interested in this area, my grandmother died of breast cancer, yeah, I true. always wondered why she got this treatment and not the other. Yeah. Can I do my own research, research yeah. project? Can I do a systematic review which will easily take 100 hours? And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. you know. Um, 
so. And it's a little bit sad from yeah. our end because, I mean, we do, I mean, I'm a scientist, Mike and I are scientists. We do our research from our side as well as being academics. Um, but we lack the clinical exposure. My area is, say, peripheral nerve injury and repair, um, but I have no idea how it works at a surgical level. But then when I talk to, say, hand orthopedic surgeons or ENT surgeons, they give you these really great ideas of what could be done and all the holes in the research, but it just seems there's a disconnect between what could be done but we can only do so much here and not have a great deal of ideas besides what can be done in the lab. But there's that missing point. And mm. you have you know, registrars or even residents that could do it, but they just don't have the time to be able to do it. They can maybe say, I can give you half a day a week, but that doesn't really mean you'll see them. You might see them once a month. So it's really sad, I find, that we just can't do that collaborative connection. Yeah, I think the internal cultures we've created within clinical medicine and academic medicine have been essentially unhelpful. A, in that we consider them like separate things. Like yeah. we we imply that you've got to choose yeah. one or the other. And then in both directions, there's a sort of conceit to it in that if you're a clinician and you choose to take up an academic position, as I did when I took up my position with Bond, everyone's like, what are you doing that for? Yeah, like yeah. somehow, you know, they're implying that somehow that's a step down. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes. the other way as well, you know, that academics kind of seem to think, you know, perceive ourselves as the ivory tower and that, you know, you kind of sell out if you're going into clinical medicine. You know, yeah. You're not doing the kind of, you know, I've had friends who are academics going, you know, who do you think developed the vaccines, you know? The, the, you know who do you, yeah, yeah. you think is going to save the world from COVID, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone thinks they're in the best group. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's essentially unhelpful, you know. Yeah. We, we should integrate these two things and say you can be a clinician academic or an academic clinician or whatever you want to call it mm. because being able to, yeah, I find it's really helpful for me to have the clinical side where I see the impact of what I do in practically in breast cancer yes. surgery, but also having the academic side to go, I've got this little inkling of an idea that something will work better than the current technique and I just need to run an RCT. Yep. Yeah. yeah Absolutely. Yeah. They've you're right, they inform each other and there's they're so important and there is a gap, there's a disconnect that happens there. And whether it's a, a time thing or a group perspective sort of thing, thinking that we're better than the other. It, it does need to be bridged, especially if we want to do better with research and education. Mm. So we've hit the point now where you are a practicing surgeon, general and breast surgeon. Are you now in Australia or are you still in the in NZ? Yeah, so um, husband and I became consultants in our specialties at the same Time like literally one Friday we were trainees and the next Monday we were both consultants. Oh no way! Yes, and we'd managed to land it at the same hospital as well. Wow! So after years of you know traveling, commuting to different hospitals all the time, and um, this was in New South Wales. No, or? in New Zealand. In, in New Zealand. Okay. In New Zealand, and we were like, "This is it. We're set." Um, of course, three months after that, um, my husband came over to the Gold Coast on a conference. Yeah. And I think it was about August, a time in New Zealand where it's quite chilly still, but quite pleasant on the Gold Coast. And he was like, darling, it's gorgeous over here. <laughs> the weather's so good. Yeah. Um, by the way, they offered me a job. Oh. <laughs> and where was this at? 
At Gold Coast Hospital. At Gold Coast Hospital. Yeah, which yeah. at that point was just at the point where they'd outgrown Southport. Yeah. Plans were afoot for what's now the University Hospital. Yeah. Rabina had just been bought out from what was St Vincent's. Yeah. So the whole hospital was going to have to expand by about threefold. Mm. So I was like, oh, I wonder if they'd want a surgeon. So I wrote a little letter to the head of surgery. Dear head of surgery, you know, I'm a breast surgeon. And, yeah, they were like, come, 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 come. Wow. wow. Yeah. And when was this? Uh, 2007 I got the job offer. Arrived early in 2008. Wow. Yeah, and then was like, wait, they haven't got a breast unit. And they were like, yes, that's what you're here to do. You're here to establish the breast unit. Oh, and so how did, <laughs> how did you go with that? Because that would be a big task. Well, the thing was husband was there to establish the psychogeriatric unit. Oh, God, so you're both busy. Yeah, so we and, and none of this gets taught to you in your training. Yeah. So they people were like, what's your, in, uh, what's your funding model? Yeah. What's your structure? How many FTE of A, B, and C was so you? You're to become business people too now. Uh, yeah, we we uh, you know, darling, what are you doing for this uh, and that and you know yeah. and crazy things that you don't think you're going to get asked. You know, what's your indemnity policy? Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, what? Don't no. <laughs> Just came from New Zealand. What's the landscape here in Australia? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, so that was oh seven oh eight. Yeah. And uh, where are you currently practicing? Still in the same place. Still at the same place. In the breast unit I established. And how has it changed? Have you, how many, is it, you've still got the unit, you've got more surgeons that are working yeah, with you? Yeah, and so it's grown, it's multidisciplinary. And when we first started, if you wanted medical or radiation oncology, you had to go to Brisbane. Now that's established on the Gold Coast. Oh, great. And being a woman, of course, I insisted on having all the, what you might call non-clinical aspects as well, because I was like... Your boob, you, you know, your breast is not just an organ. It's yeah. not like losing a kidney. You know, you can't even wear clothes to fit. Mm, it's hard to exercise when you're lopsided. It's It affects your social confidence, your ability to go out and meet people, mm. your sexual function. You know, it, it's just such an important organ for women that you can't just provide the surgery and the oncology and think that's it. Mm. Yeah. So we had social workers and specialist breast care nurses and cancer psychologists. Oh, and, wow. You know, and, of course, I did deal with a bit of um, sexist bias, you know. Oh, well, do we need all this touchy-feely stuff, you know. Wow. Oh, God. You know. Without – I mean, health is so much more than just yeah. the snip and sew and all yeah. that type of stuff. So, you know, slightly cheekily, I'm like, look, I demand to be – you know, I demand the right to be an emotional female, <laughs> you know. <laughs> God, I say to him, I demand the right to be an emotional male yeah. <laughs> all, all, all the time. and and But that's good. So the, the unit now takes this holistic approach. Tries to. We're constantly at the mercy of funding and resources. Of course. Always. Yeah. Always. So just as soon as you build up one aspect, it seems like you're getting cut on another yeah. aspect. Yeah. So you're constantly having to, you know, fight for bits and pieces. But the overall trajectory is forwards. That's brilliant. And do you have any concern, because you, you do hear this in the background with the pandemic that we're going through, that we've been in lockdown, we've um, moved allocation of funding in, in different ways, that say cancer screening and so forth is, has been pushed, pushed to the side. Do you suspect that you might see a big change um, next year or the year after in breast surgery and breast cancer? And we're so already forth? seeing it. You're already oh, seeing okay, it. Yeah. Wow. And it's not because of service provision, actually. Um, mammography 
uh, didn't close down except for a few weeks in the very, very first lockdown because Queensland's been so spoiled with yes, very yes. few COVID Lucky outbreaks. Me. So um, breast screening has continued throughout, but what we find is that people are reluctant to come. Right. I think partly because it's not in the priority list. You know, they've got so many other things to worry about. You know, people have lost their jobs, all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, so it's not in the priority list, but also because they're fearful. So we know that particularly amongst the older group who had a very heavy narrative of, you know, you're vulnerable, stay at yes. home, look after yourselves, don't hang out with anyone. Yeah. You know, that kind of, here, come and pop your boob on a plate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, they're like, oh, how do we know it's being, st- you know, wiped down and sterilised and will I have to sit in the waiting room with other people? And you know, Yeah, of course. So we find that the uptake of regular mammography has decreased. So it's not service provision, it's it's just fear in the right. community. So yeah. for anyone who happens to be listening, I'm like, we're open. If you do for your mammogram, come and get it, please. Yeah. please. Just wear your mask. <laughs> well, the thing get is jab, we have seen what's – and this has been seen worldwide, but we're seeing what we call a stage shift in that women are presenting at later stages yeah. because they've delayed their screening. Yeah, that's horrible. Because total, of the pandemic. Total tragedy, yeah. Yes, yeah, um, and the pandemic affects you in lots of ways you wouldn't even expect. Like we've had women who have gone for their mammography, found their cancer nice and early, but they can't proceed with their surgery because their primary carer lives more than 20 minutes south in New South Wales oh, and can't get over the border. Oh, God. You know, and so they're like, but I can't proceed unless my daughter can come and help look after me, right? Yes. And so, you know, we end up having to write letters and yeah. get permission for them to come and da 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 And so the pandemic has had multiple Multiple and unexpected. Would never have yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, moving forward, where where do you see yourself in five, ten years' time, uh-huh. or whatever, really? So <laughs> you know, a I'm stubborn. B the woman in my family live past a hundred, so I'm like, do they really? You got, yeah. a, you got a while. Grand, wow, grandma passed on at 105, so I'm like, oh, wow. I'm pretty sure I'm going to be agitating for something when I'm 90. I was going to say, well, you, you've got another 50 years as yeah, a person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I've always got to be in my bonnet about something that needs to be fixed, right? So That's great. Yeah. I mean, in the immediate term, of course, uh, while I've still got the eyes and the coordination and everything to do it, there's, you know, women with breast cancer to sort out. Yeah. So there's that. Um, but. Even after I pass what would most people would consider a retirement age, I'm like, look, I didn't do all this education for nothing. Mm. You know, my eyes and hands might not be steady enough to do the actual operative surgery, but I can teach. Yes. Yeah. Well, you might be putting uh, solar panels in the Sahara somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Never cramp kids' dreams. (laughs) I agree. You know, it's like, where do you think, you know, Richard Branson, or I'm sure he at the same age would be like, mum. I think I'll have a, you know, the yeah. largest, you know, fl- fleet of airplanes or That's something, right. you know, and That's right. probably lots of adults were like, yeah, 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 whatever, but yeah. I, I agree. You can let them have these crazy dreams. Let them give it a go. Um, look, I think all this is just amazing and you are inspiring and just <laughs> amazing, <laughs> amazing. And I think the listeners will, will agree with that. And we really, really appreciate that you're able to come in and share your story uh, and hopefully you can do it again. The podcast, that is. The podcast, yeah. Come in <laughs> and... Uh, after all that, you'd have me back. We'll have you back. <laughs> well, after one hour and 45 minutes, it's been absolutely interesting and just an, an amazing story. So we really appreciate it. So thank you. It's just me. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, it, I'm so chuffed that people find it inspiring and amazing or whatever, but to me, I'm just like, it, it's, it's just little old me. <laughs> you know, none of it has been pl- particularly well planned, 
you know, when people say, what would you do differently? I'm like, oh, where do you want me to start? <laughs> um, but I think the most important thing for people to take away is follow your nose. Yeah. You know, if you're constantly doing stuff you'll love, then you'll end up doing something you love long term. Yeah. You know, don't close off your gates. Keep your mind open. Uh, you know, I'm the one who hated surgery the first time and here I am. Um, it, Yeah, just follow your nose. Brilliant. Brilliant. Where can people find you on Twitter again? <laughs> at Liang Ria. I know, not the most imaginative. It's okay. Mine's <laughs> at Dr. Mike Todorovic. So <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> no different. Uh, as a listener, you can, again, contact Dr. Matt Knight on Twitter. As I said, at Dr. Mike Todorovic. Uh, you can send us an email at gubiosciences. No, gubiosciences at gmail.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Dr. Mike Todorovic. You can watch us on YouTube, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike, and you obviously listen to the podcast. So thank you all and thank you again, Ria. Thank you, Ria. It's my pleasure. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.